chapter 29 this evening, the lion's altar. We will go right to the first verse. Woe to Jerusalem, woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add year to year, let feasts come around. Sometimes these prophets speak almost in code. You, you, they know what they were saying. This uh, reference to the city where David dwelt, well, David took Jerusalem from the Jebusites, 2 Samuel 5. But Ariel will grab much of our attention in the beginning. It is a poetic name for Jerusalem. But it is introduced with a woe. Woe to Jerusalem. Woe to Ariel. And so there's this emphasis that Isaiah is preaching concerning Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of peace. And Ariel means, literally from the Hebrew, Lion of God, Ariel. But there's a dual meaning here. The Lion of God and altar. It also is used to refer to the altar of God. Because what should have characterized Jerusalem? with all that God invested in his people, with all that he had done for them, heroism and sacrifice. That is characterized by that one word in context to how the prophet is using it and how Ezekiel uses it. Heroism and sacrifice. It is the lion's altar. Of course they fell short. As a people, they failed. Well, Don't get discouraged when ideals fail you. These high standards, God's standards high, and we can't reach the top. But we are so much better off trying than giving up in discouragement and walking away. God never walked away from his people. He withdrew, but he did not abandon them. And that comes out in the prophecies of Isaiah in this 29th chapter also. The Lion of God defiantly, defiantly holding the Assyrian army at bay because that's what's happening happening historically here. This is about, initially, this is about the siege of Jerusalem. Assyria, again, the whole life of the prophet Assyria, uh, the prophet Isaiah is in the shadow of Assyria. This death knell that was looming or sounding in the background all of his life And he writes about it. He addresses it. When he gets into the position of prophet, preacher, he addresses these things. But that is what Jerusalem is doing. They are defying the Assyrian army. We'll get to that when we get uh, into chapters 35, a little further up. And thus the name is descriptive of Jerusalem. Ariel, the heroic city, the heroic symbol of of divine truth. It was supposed to be a beacon to the world. This lighthouse saying, we have the truth, you don't. But if you want the truth, come get the truth. Well, they failed on that latter part miserably. But it was that emblem of truth. David knew it. Ariel, also the altar, where the sacrifices were burned, Ezekiel 43, 15 and 16, I'll come to that in a minute. It is God's place of sacrifice. He is the one that gives value to it. You build an altar anywhere. It is nothing until God acknowledges it and accepts it. How do we know Abraham? Abraham 
put throughout the landscape of the promised land, he left altars, places of worship to his God. In verse 2, we'll clearly uh, point to that place of sacrifice and fire, uh, because, of course, fire belongs to this sacrifice of, of this altar, as opposed to the incense altar, which is fire was involved there too, but not certainly the flames of the brazen altar. As I mentioned, Ezekiel, he picks up on what Isaiah is saying here. Some of the commentators, you know, they debate whether it means Jerusalem or the altar of God and, and back and forth. Well, um, I wouldn't get to my understanding without having to read all of their uh, arguments. I don't mean arguments in the sense of fussing at each other, but their positions. And uh, I, my, my conclusion is it is both. Um, Isaiah and Ezekiel give us an interpretive rendering. There's nothing wrong with that. If you're reading your Bible to a child, say the child is four years old, and you're reading and you come across words and, and meanings that are over the child's head, but you know you can reword it in a way that the child will understand without harming the text, that is an interpretive rendering. I do it sometimes from the pulpit. I know, so, you know if I read that word, it's going to cause more questions than give answers. And if I just read the, the, the uh, translation of the word literal or an alternate, it will put to rest that question. So there is nothing wrong with that as long as the meanings are not changed. Uh, not saying that we should do that with our scripture, not at all. So it's referring to the place where the altar of God always burned, or at least was to always burn. The flame was not to go out. And this should have lionized Jerusalem. When we say lionized, we make a hero out of Jerusalem. Ezekiel, he picks up on how the people failed, but how God would not abandon them. Ezekiel 36, And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profane among the nations. Well, who did that? Well, his people. Because he tells us. Which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am Yahweh, says Yahweh, says the Lord Yahweh, when I am hollowed in you before their eyes. Don't miss that word, hollowed, because we preface Jesus, when teaching us a pattern for prayer, he prefaced it with hollowing the Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hollowed be your name. Uh, you could say that about no one else, except the members of the Godhead. He says here, in verse 1, Add year to year, let feast come around. Well, these are God's yearly festivals. There were three that were mandated for the men, but there were, there were about seven festivals that the Jews uh, largely engaged in. And the people were making their rounds with the sacrifices. They were, they were going through the religious motions. But they didn't mean it. It became cultural. It's sort of like celebrating the resurrection of the Lord with bunnies and eggs. Um, not even a good breakfast, those two. I mean, I mean it just takes the, it just steals the thunder. It's supposed to be the day where we are focused on the risen Lord and what he has done for us as sinners and what he continues to do as Lord over our sin through the cross of Christ. 
There's not supposed to be a runner-up. There's not supposed to be some emblem that competes with the greater emblem of the cross of Christ in the empty tomb. And this is offense to many people. Well, my response would be, well, I'm offended by, by the bunnies. Well, the chocolate ones get us an exception. You can, you can, they're okay, because we can eat those. Okay, not really. But, I mean, it makes to make a difference. Coming back to what's going on here, the people were having their feast days. They were following it according to the letter of the law and the priest. They were coming to, the, to Jerusalem. And yet Isaiah is pronouncing a woe on dead religious activities and attitudes. That's why he says, he's saying, woe to Jerusalem, that place of worship that was supposed to be heroic. You're going about your feast days. The Assyrian army is coming, and it's coming because you messed it all up. These things, these rituals, listen to what Paul says, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You ever meet a Christian all caught up in diet and wardrobe to a fault? I mean, I, I, I believe in wardrobe. I think people should come to church with clothes on. Uh, so, you know, but you can push something way too far. And Paul was dealing with these types of people, and, and he knew the church in Colossae uh, was also. And he said, listen, this stuff doesn't... They have these rituals they go through and these rules and regulations. They have nothing to do with righteousness. They do not make you better Christians. Well, that's what was happening in ancient Israel at this time. Isaiah was saying, yeah, I see you going to the feast, but you don't mean it. You know, we're going to get to that because he's not going to let it go. Jesus even brought it up uh, hundreds of years later. Verse 2 now, he says, Yet I will distress Ariel. There shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as Ariel. Typical Isaiah, playing around with these words in the Hebrews. The phrases, and not, that's not a bad thing. It's a, he's just very intelligent man. And uh, uh, here he is saying, spiritless religion does not sit well with God. Going through rituals without a relationship with God, it really offends him. Today's Christless Christianity, as A.W. Tozer labeled it, brings the judgment that will begin to fall in, in verse, well, it's already falling. Verse 9, we'll, we'll deal with it even more. This is the very thing. When Jesus, you know, when Jesus went to the seven churches in Revelation, addressing each one of them, he pinpointed their problems, and he also highlighted areas where they excelled. And you say to yourself, why would he do that when these people were, were like had Jezebels in it? Well, because while they had Jezebels, they also had true worshipers in there also. And he did not lose sight of that. But he warns them as a group to fix, to fix it. And uh, it's just uh, the mercy of God in dealing with it. Of course, he gets to the church at Philadelphia and Smyrna, and he has no rebuke for those two churches, which means that uh, churches can find great favor with God and dodge the rebuke. Well, judgment has to come to Jerusalem, and it would come upon the altar. It would come upon the people. And the city of peace would be everything but that. And the thing about an altar is, is that it burns up everything around it except itself. It survives the heat. And whatever, whatever 
touches the altar must perish. And well, in its proper place, that's the way it's designed. But when Israel becomes an altar and everything around it is destroyed, such as the, the, the countless villages and tribes and people that the Assyrians were wiping out, taking, enslaving them, that was unacceptable. So the surroundings of the once heroic city will be also ablaze. The Isaiah is playing with the word, Ariel. This is the city of God. But it's an altar. It's an altar to the Lord. But it's also burning up stuff as a judgment because it's being misused. Sort of like saying fire is a very good thing, and it's not on the curtains. And it has come to the curtains here. Uh, it, uh, a, a blaze like a sin offering. The Jews would appreciate this kind of language. The Jews in this day, they would have been on the edge of their seats listening to this sermon. It had everything to do with what they believed. There shall be heaviness and sorrow. That's not a good thing. That's one element of the judgment. And the invaders, the Assyrians, and then later the Babylonians, and then there would be other Seleucid, then the Romans. It was just a chain of, of judgment from these countries. The overtones of prophecy run throughout Everything these prophets have to say, they never lost sight of the end, which was the millennial kingdom. And, but everything in between, they, they, they didn't sweep it under a rug. They didn't say, well, these are our people and we're going to always you know, run the, we're going to push out propaganda. We're going to make our people look like they're better than everybody else. That's not what the prophets did. They, they called it like it was, as I just read from Ezekiel. They should have been a light to the nations and they failed. And there's a big problem when you have Christians that pretend things that uh, God has forbidden are somehow acceptable. It doesn't mean we have to be savage about it. You just cannot uh, just ignore the things that God has called us to address. That's what was happening here in Jerusalem when they were bringing their sacrifices to the temple. They were ignoring sin. Here's my sin offering. But they didn't care anything about their sin. And it's throughout the prophets. There's no way to escape it. This is not easy reading. You know what? I'm feeling down. I think I'll read Hosea. And you're going to open up these, you know, what, how God is addressing the curse upon humanity. And it shall be to me Ariel. And so you have this double use. Yet I will distress Ariel the city, and it shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me Ariel the altar. See, that's Isaiah playing with the words. That's why Ezekiel picks it up in chapter 43 when he's talking about the new altar in the kingdom age. And he gets to that section, uh, I don't know, thirteen verses 13 through 16 in Ezekiel 43, and he uses four different words for the altar in the Hebrew. And so looking at Ezekiel 43, verse 15, the altar, the altar hearth, is four cubits high with four horns extending upward from the hearth. So the hearth, not the hearth, the hearth. And so he's, he's talking about the altar, and then he says, the next verse, the altar hearth is. That's a different word. Two different words for the altar. That second word is Ariel. See, so he picked up on what Isaiah was saying. He understood that the altar of the Jew was supposed to be the Lion of God. Where does that come up for us? The Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God. There you have the hero and the sacrifice rolled into one. 
how do you how do you write such things? How do you get sixty six writings by all, all these different authors over a couple of thousand years to all point to, in the same direction? Well, the Holy Spirit. But there, of course, was this corruption of the heroic lion, Jerusalem, and uh, of, of God's flaming altar, which would bring judgment. That's what verse 2 is talking about. In verse 3, he says, I will encamp against you all around. I will lay siege against you with a mound. I will raise siege works against you. He's talking to Jerusalem, which is the people. He's personifying uh, Jerusalem, but it's, it's the people in Jerusalem. God did encamp against Jerusalem through the Assyrians, and then 115 years later or so with the Babylonians, more than once. There were three heavy visits by the Babylonian army to Jerusalem, and on the third one they said, that's it, we're going to demolish the city, and that is what they did. And they're not the last ones to have demolished Jerusalem, especially the Temple Mount area. And so when God is against one, there's nothing one can do except repent and endure or be doomed. The prophet is trying to get them to repent. Remember, all the prophets, they, were, they weren't alone. They were, they were, there was a remnant, albeit small, marginalized largely. Uh, they, they were not alone, and that was a blessing of the Lord. Even Jeremiah had Baruch who God blessed heavily, the prophecies of Jeremiah. Verse 4 now of Isaiah 29. You shall be brought down, you shall speak out of the ground. Your speech shall be low out of the dust. Your voice shall be like a medium's out of the ground. Your speech shall whisper out of the dust. You know, the, the older King James Version can give... You know, it would cause so much more explanation. That's why I prefer the New King James. Um, the Septuagint does a lot of interpretive rendering, just as a passing note, if you come across some of these things. They're not contradictions. You just got to dig more to make them line up. Anyway, God is saying what's uh, everything about talking spirits, talking to the spirits, talking to the dead. Praying to Mary. This stuff is an abomination to God. It's clearly laid out in Scripture. People do it anyway. Uh, Deuteronomy and Leviticus get right to the point with these things. The Old Testament prophets, they condemn these occult practices. And for Isaiah to say to his, the people of God, you're going to be behaving, and, and he, he uses these uh, occultic practices to characterize them, it's a rebuke all by itself. And so, the city that was, that had a proud past, and Jerusalem did. You think of David, of course, and Solomon. What, what, what the city, uh, what, what happened there as far as what the righteous achieved is now perverted, presently perverted in the days of Isaiah, and is facing this fearful future full of woe, terrified by the Assyrians, and again, demolished later by the Babylonians. Because you say, well, Jerusalem survived. Yeah, but think about if your country, the capital city survives, but all the other cities are wiped out. Well, that would be horrific. 
Yeah, family members, loved ones, your land. And that's what took place. And when the Rabshakeh shows up, some of the other cities were still smoldering. And they had good reason to be terrified. And that's why he was, the way he talked, you know, the, the foul language he used, the intimidation, terrorist tactics. When the Jews said, can you, like, hold it down so no one heals us? We're talking here as diplomats. He's, he got louder and more obnoxious. Uh, of course, it uh, didn't work well for him. Anyway, what he is saying here is that the city will come to dust, and the people of the city, they're going to hide themselves uh, in the dust and the rubble. They're going to pretend to be dead to, to escape the, the enemy. Uh, they're going to be so scared that if they communicate, they're going to be whispering so nobody hears them. A very detailed prophecy by the prophet. Uh, verse 5. Moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones like chaff that passes away. Yes, it shall be in an instant, suddenly. This is an abrupt change now. The, he moves from the antagonist, from the Assyrians, and he, he now comes to the protagonist, to the Jews. And the, as you move through the verses, you, 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 it's pretty easy to connect. Uh, so the entire mood changes with this word, suddenly. The Lord saving Jerusalem from Assyria. And as you'll get that in verses 6 and 8. We get that again in latter chapters of Isaiah, and then we have it also in Kings. So the foe, he is saying, the Assyrians I'm going to use to judge you, but they're not out of control. They're under my control, God has said, as sovereign. They are his instrument of judgment. But Jerusalem is the object of judgment also. But it's not going to be, it's not going to annihilate the Jewish people, as it did some of the other people, such as the Edomites. Verse 6, you will be punished by Yahweh of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and flame of devouring fire. Verse 7, the multitude of all nations who fight against Ariel, even all who fight against her and her fortress, and distress her shall be as a dream of a night of a night vision. So there you see he's talking he, the abrupt changes about Ariel, Jerusalem, and it's, he's 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 saying your enemies, uh, the vanquish of the Assyrian army, they the, the vanquishing or the vanquisher will be vanquished. The Assyrian, with her foreign troops, and she had many of them. When God wipes out the 185,000 of them, they all were not born in Nineveh. And many of them were from peoples that the, the Assyrians had conquered. You know, if you were a young man living in that ancient world, uh, you, didn't, you had, didn't have any options. If you can get into the military, um, you could have a pretty good life if you were on the side of a juggernaut like Assyria was until Babylonians came along. Then you were on the wrong team. Uh, otherwise, what were your options? I mean, farming, if you could be a merchant, if you had family. but you know, So you had a lot of men from all over the region as a part of this army. And uh, when they uh, raised or demolished a city, the loot was theirs if they could get their hands on it. And that was the incentive. So that's why we pick up Isaiah 37. Then the angel of Yahweh went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when 
the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. Reminds us of the Egyptian army that was swallowed up by the Yam Suf, the Sea of Reeds, as they chased Moses and the people, uh, trying to re-enslave them. And they, the Jews woke up the next day, and there were the, the, what was left of the, the corpses on the shore of, um, of, of Egypt's army. Anyway, verse 8, It shall even be as when a hungry man dreams, and look, he eats, but when he awakes and his soul is still empty, or as when a thirsty man dreams, and look, he drinks, but he awakes, and indeed he is faint, and his soul still craves. So the multitude of all the nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion. Now, when, the, <clears throat> when he wrote this, he didn't say, you know, people many generations later, later, they don't need to hear all this stuff. But for his generation, that they wanted to hear this. They would go home thinking about the, the graphic language that he, he used, uh, such as here in, in verse 8. Deliverance is assured. And all the nations that uh, rise up against Zion, Zion will suffer dissatisfaction. So he says, it shall be as when a man is hungry and he dreams. And look, he eats, but he awakes and his soul is still empty. And he, so he's saying, these conquerors that come down, they're not going to be satisfied. That's not the reason why they're coming. They think that's the reason why. God is saying they're coming to execute judgment on you. If I don't keep put these checks and balances in place, number one, I will end up perpetuating, enabling the Jewish people to be worse. And number two, I will be guilty of not uh, dealing with the corruption when it reaches levels of intolerance. So their dreams will fail. The conquerors will come to Jerusalem, but they won't be satisfied, which was what happened to Reb Shaka when he comes. And I like saying Reb Shaka. Uh, there are just certain words you'd, you'd like to say. Who doesn't like to say Mozambique? Anyway, uh, there's a bunch of them coming. Timbuktu. I mean, just say it. Not now. Whisper it, but don't mutter it. Anyway, uh, uh, where am I here? Back, back in verse 8. Uh, all of this has, again, end time overtones. All of it is looking uh, in the direction of the future to a conclusion, not just an ongoing, endless conclusion with the scoffers. You know, where is the, since our fathers, we've been talking about the day of his coming. Where is it? You know, that's just unbelief at work. No surprise there. Um, anyway, only by God's sovereign intervention was Jerusalem spared, of course. And uh, those, this thing about Israel, this little piece of land about the size of New Jersey, is just uh, this stumbling block for the world. Zechariah 12, verse 9, speaking about the world tripping over Israel. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Well, Armageddon's going to do that. Micah writes about this. He's a contemporary of Isaiah. Zechariah came later. But Micah says, Now also many nations have gathered against you, who say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of Yahweh, nor do they understand his counsel. For he will gather them like sheaves 
to the thrashing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron. I will make your hooves bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many people, peoples. I will consecrate their gain to Yahweh and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. And so there's the Lord of the whole earth uh, uh, being Lord over the whole earth and protecting Israel. And again, another end time prophecy. And so um, uh, the foes will rise. There will be struggles. I'm not going to read. Well, maybe I will just read a little bit. Most of you know this verse from Zechariah 14. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken. The houses rifled and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And it just continues to then brings in his Mount of Olives. We know this is end times, even though it had elements of fulfillment uh, previous to the final battle when almost all of Israel is wiped out. So the tiny nation of Israel is the tail wagging the earth. And uh, the earth doesn't believe it. And this because God has pledged his care for Israel. And Satan is obsessed with overthrowing whatever God cares for. And that's why Israel is uh, such uh, the center of spiritual and physical attention by those that are against God. And it is the, the, the love of those who are with God to care for Jerusalem. Verse 9 Pause and wonder, blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. And now again to the Jews, he is reproving uh, their folly of formality and hypocrisy. They're, they're going down to the temple, back up in verse 1, where you know they're going with their feast days. They enjoyed their feast days, their, their holidays. It's, a, you know... Christless Christian uh, Christmas kind of a, a thing. And I don't want to get into how Christmas started and was this and that. Just overall, we see that there are people that will say Merry Christ Mass, but have no interest in Christ. And you say, well, that's, there's some hypocrisy in there. Uh, coming back to this, uh, well, the remainder of the chapter deals with Judah's widespread sin and the coming judgments. God says here in verse 9, blind yourselves and be blind. He says, you're retreating from reality. Fine. You want to you wanna be blind? You don't want to see what's going on? You're going to reap what you sow. That comes with a, there's a price attached to that. It's not free. Um, to, to make believe that the obvious does not exist, it's not going to work in your favor. You turn from God, and from God you will be turned. There's a cause and an, an effect. There's an action and a reaction but it, it shouldn't happen. And it did not happen to everyone. It didn't happen to Isaiah. But it happened to a lot of them. Why don't the Jewish people look at this today and, and just say, you know, let's just worship the Lord according to the scripture. Well, the rabbis are in the way. That's why. Same things happen with the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church. You can't call it a Catholic Church. You can call it a Roman Church. Because uh, Catholic means universal. And they're not universal. They're limited with their Roman theology. Anyhow, they... Um, they listen to the cardinals and the popes, the magisterium, not the scripture. That's the great dis- difference between Bible believers and uh, those who follow Romanism. 
And it's not an insult. It's just a fact. And no one is there. Those who know anything about it on their side will be quick to admit it. Well, blind yourselves and be blind. Why were the people of Jerusalem so ignorant to what God was doing? Why are people that way now? Why churchgoers? So many churchgoers hear the truth about things and it's, it just bounces off of them. This is the mystery of lawlessness and we cannot let it discourage us. Uh, the whole thing with the two thieves on the cross, they heard the same sermon from the same man at the same time. One went on to heaven, the other chose to opt out. And uh, you don't let these things discourage us because where is the heroism in discouragement? It's not. You cannot be heroic for the causes of Christ if you have succumbed to discouragement. Now, we all face discouragement on multiple levels. I mean, you can just think there's one more Twinkie in the box, and it's not. It's discouraging, but that's so minuscule, although the flesh will rear up, and, and you don't think you took the child from them. Uh, the flesh cares nothing about what makes sense to God uh, or righteousness, and we all have it, and we all spend our entire life fighting it because the flesh does not die uh, from natural causes. The flesh will not die until the Lord says, come on in. Well, anyway, why were the people of Jerusalem so ignorant? Well, verse 13 tells us because their hearts were far from God. God wants my heart. And if I feel like, you know, I'm not giving it to him, then I, sh I need to take it up with him. What I do not, what I must not do is ignore it or, or cave into it. They had trusted their outward forms of worship. They faithfully kept their feast as mentioned. And yet it wasn't true worship the whole time. The whole time God was not in their mind. He was just an ornament on the tree. Uh, Going to the temple was a popular thing for their culture. Everybody did it. Uh, it was time for the Passover. We all have to get rid of the leaven. It was just this fun seasonal thing. But they didn't care what the Bible said. They didn't like what Isaiah was saying. Therefore, God sent spiritual blindness, put the people in a stupor. Instead of pouring into them the Holy Spirit, he said, fine, I'll pour into you sleep. And that is exactly uh, what we're going to come to uh, in a moment. And this sleep kept them, this blindness kept them from understanding their own Bible, uh, as uh, is, it is with many churchgoers. They can't stomach expositional teaching. They want you to get up in the pulpit and give them statistics, tell them skyscraper, give them skyscraper sermons. One story built atop of another story. Thrill them the whole time. But please, whatever you do, don't give me doctrine. Do not give me exposition and character studies. And that's what Isaiah faced also. We talked about the people saying, what's he going to teach us like kids? The drunks were saying, you know, precept upon precept. It was a jingle. You know, precept upon precept, you know, line upon line. They were mocking him and he mocked them back. I love those prophets. They didn't take any mess. They just... I mean, they had to take some, but when, when the opportunity arise, uh, arose for them to straight out deal with what was happening, they dealt with it. 
And here he says, they are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. Here in verse 9, alcohol-free spiritual idiocy. That's what that is. And that's what they would have understand him to be saying. You're walking around drunk with things about God, and it's your fault. Staggering from one dumb idea to another idea. Paul said it, tossed to and fro. By every wind of doctrine, going to any church, loving any preacher, no matter what they're saying, always learning and never really getting the point. Uh, This is not acceptable, and it shouldn't be. It's not like, well, you've got a handicap where, you know, you can understand God's word. Well, that's not true. That's why Jesus said to Satan, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he couldn't say that. If, um, if it was, you know, only for scholars. Well, anyone who studies is a scholar. Of course, we use the word differently from time to time. Any student of Scripture will learn. Not all of it, but enough of it. And there will be things that you will say, hmm, that's perplexing. But there will be a lot of other things where you say, I got it. And not only do I have it, I have it well enough to give it. And that is letting... The Spirit flow through you. Verse 10, For Yahweh has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets. He has covered your heads, namely the seers. (laughs) The, uh, instead again of pouring the Spirit into the people, welcoming them to be in communion with God, He's pouring sleep into them. God himself. Romans chapter 1. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. There reaches a point where God says, fine. Maybe you'll understand this. This is what you insist on having. This is what you shall get. Uh, And then they blame him for that. And so in this sleep they missed everything. He cut the, no more prophets. A subtle difference between a prophet and a seer because, you know, some of the the prophets were seers. But the office of a prophet had a lot more authority than just a person who could see something. The the prophets wielded authority. Um, And that's my take on the distinction between the two. Romans chapter 1 again. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to those things which are not fitting. But the sad thing is, as many Christians cave with them. It just, <clears throat> they just think it's just better to change teams than to stand. And having done all to stand, to stand. Uh, it does hurt, but you've got to take the pain. Uh, you're going to be in pain no matter what in life. There's pain everywhere. But you might as well try to make it count for the kingdom. I tell myself that, and I believe it, and it has worked well for me, and I'm afraid of thinking what, where I would be if I didn't take that approach. Um, what would I do if I just got discouraged with ministry or just life? Um, it, it, I don't want to just change the subject. So, uh, in no way is God to blame for their apostasy or his intolerance. Uh, Consider the miracles that Pharaoh refused to yield to. 
Well, stick that on God. It's his fault. No, it's Pharaoh's fault. God was reaching out to him. Moses appealed to him, and he would have none of it. Uh, Consider Judas Iscariot. Uh, saw more things than most people who were ever born saw. And uh, look what he did with it. Anyway, it's their fault that Yahweh hurt them for being harmful. Uh, action and reaction. And why are rebellious sinners so upset with, with God when he behaves like God? <laughs> While they deny him at the same time. Well, this is what sin does to people. And we need to be sensitive to that. You know, when you're dealing with somebody, say, well, you know, I'm dealing with somebody who is in a deep sleep. I'm dealing with someone who's staggering, but not because of some substance. It's sin that is doing this. And uh, our response is always, I think, the same, largely. We can do our part. And sometimes our part, our part is always to follow the Spirit. Sometimes it's to be quiet. Sometimes it's to be encouraging. Sometimes it is to rebuke. Verse 11, the whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I am not literate. Well, this blindness is the result of their infidelity to God, as we've been looking at. And... uh, Holding God's word uh, is insignificant because they were frauds going down to the temple offering sacrifices, blind to the truth. And so here you have the educated and the uneducated. And to one he says, can you read the scriptures? I can't. It's closed to me. It is sealed. And he goes to the other one who can't read and says, well, I would break the seal, but I couldn't read anyway. Isaiah is giving us this picture. Paul summed it up this way. And as you see this in the Old Testament, you come across the New Testament cross-references, you've got to say to yourself, those New Testament apostles were reading those Old Testament prophets. And so he says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They have foolishness to him, nor can he know them. They are sealed. Because they are spiritually discerned. And these people were with the wrong spirit. The natural man is the unsaved man. The carnal man is the one that claims Christ, but is living like the unsaved one. And we all have an element of carnality that we got to watch out for. Uh, so the spiritual man, of course, is, is in rhythm with Scripture, which is the mind of God, because it is the Word of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's all tied in. Verse 13, Therefore, the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Well, this is Christ, Matthew 15, saying that to the, to the religious Pharisees. Saying, you know, you, you, you give me lip service, but you don't mean it. You are far from me. You make up laws and you say God did this, but no, it's really you did this. And you did this to get something from people. You're corrupt is is the bottom line. And so uh, it would be, they were flattering God, but they were false through and through. This goes back again to verse 1. Ritual alone does not impress God. 
Oh, look at the candles you lit. I, I never saw anybody light one with their left hand. I never saw a righty light it with the left hand. It's very impressive. God, you tell that to somebody who's... And there are a lot of people. They are very much into ritual. But they don't read their Bibles. It's very sad. Man-centered religion. And, and, and it's routine. And so, uh, here Christ is repeating himself. <laughs> centuries later... Uh, what are we, 700 years later, Christ comes and he inspired Isaiah to say this and then he quotes it to the Pharisees and we, of course, read and quote it ourselves. He repeated it in the New New Testament in different ways. And so when he gets to the church at uh, Ephesus, in Revelation 2, he says the same thing, that you're drawing near to me, but you don't love me. And... I need you to fix that. Church goers that sing hymns and give offerings and labor in the church without Jesus, making a fatal mistake. You can do those things with Jesus. It is doable. Ezekiel 33 again. Listen to what... Here's Ezekiel. He is a preacher. He's a little weird. He's a lot of weird, actually. But he was God's man. He saw a whole bunch of stuff. And when we get to heaven, and we saw the creature with the head like an ox, and all these other things, the lion and the eagle, all these things, we're going to say, ah, oh, I get it now. He's not as weird as you said he was, Rick. He was right, right on. That's not what made him weird. Anyway, Ezekiel 33. God talking with the prophet so that the people can get this. So they come to you as people do, and they sit before you as my people. And they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. Man, is that not? That's a flamethrower. That's to somebody who just comes to church and is playing around and you come across a verse like that and you say, man, this is God speaking. He sees through it. Well, the sincere heart will say, I'm going to try to fix this. And even they stumble and fail, get up and stumble, fail, continue that. God can work with that. But it's the one who just smugly acts like, no, this is acceptable. Their guilt is on them. Verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Well, of course, there are many verses, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Again, Paul, were you reading Isaiah? Obviously. And putting it into proper New Testament perspective for us. What comes out of this verse God, again, abruptly shifts, and he says, when I get these know-it-alls out of the way, these religious know-it-alls, then things will be a blessing. Man, that's a, imagine God saying, you know, if I can get you out of the picture, people will be a lot happier. That would be a heavy hit. And, and this is precisely what he is saying. Um, he has a workaround, just not immediate. So here we see people who smugly think, you know those politicians that think they have so much control and they lie and they cheat, they're corrupt, they're prancing around. Even when they're sleeping, they're prancing around. God sees that. We have to endure it. 
1 Corinthians 1. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. But, of course, we have a, a delay in execution of these things. Why? Why, God? Because he's merciful. And before you got saved, you, bet you would have been happy, too, that God was delaying justice on you. So that's why we talk about God is long-suffering, willing that none should perish, and you're supposed to be God-like in the Christ-like sense of the word. We're not like gods in that New Age nonsense. Remember Shirley MacLaine in her Out on a Limb book and nonsense that Satan got away with there. Anyway, we are not ever going to be like God, but we can be you know, like the Son in Christ-likeness. Paul said, we look in the mirror dimly, but that day is going to come. That day is going to come, and we will know him, and he will know us, and it was going to be radical. Well, Paul is enjoying that now. Uh, we're headed in that direction. Um, sort of like somebody who took a flight before you. Going to the same. All right. Verse 15. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel from Yahweh, and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us? And who knows us? In other words, no one sees us. Well, of course, Judah calling to idolaters to save them, calling to Egypt. And that was a big fuss with Isaiah, especially in the days of Ahaz, that rotten king in Judah, before his son Hezekiah comes to the throne. And so, you know, that's the thing God was bothered by. Why are you asking idolaters for help when I have made it clear, I am your help, O Jerusalem. And, and this verse tells us they put a lot of effort into deception. Who else does that? Verse 16, surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say to him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding? Well, he just summed up evolutionists. And humanists, and their upside down, downside up approach to life. The demotion of truth. That's what you're dealing with. Professing to be wise, they became fools. How come? Because they demoted truth. And that's why God said, fine, you're going to be drunk, you're going to stumble around. I'm going to put a sleep into you. I'm going to control this. It won't be as successful as Satan wants it to be. Verse 17. It is. Not yet of, is it not yet a very little while, let me reread that. Is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest? Well, Lebanon with her, you know, the cedars and the cypress trees and all that was stripped by generations of hoarding of, of armies. Anyway, this is Gentile land. This seems to be a veiled promise that God will... He hadn't forgotten the Gentiles. And Isaiah was a prophet who was very sensitive to that. When we get to the 40s in Isaiah, it comes out uh, more, more to the surface. So radical change, again, comes when Christ returns. Listen to what Isaiah says in the 58th chapter, looking forward. He's saying, my people will delight in me. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice 
They take delight in approaching God. Well, that's Jerusalem, where she should have been. The, the heroic place of the sacrifice. Of course, that is the lion and the cross. Verse 18. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. And of course, uh, the light will overcome the darkness. And uh, Isaiah is saying, things are going to get better. Remember the blind and the people earlier? Well, the righteous will see. Verse 19, the humble also shall increase their joy in Yahweh and poor among men, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Well, we've got um, two things there. We'll just take one now and the other. We'll, we'll take them both now. The meek shall inherit the earth. Uh, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's one. The other verse that has to do with this, when it mentions the Holy One, um, here, and verse 19 is where we are. They shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Well, that's Jesus Christ, because Yahweh is Christ and Jesus, and Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament. Mark's Gospel, Jesus goes into the synagogue, also, as you know, equivalent to church, and he, there he encounters a demon, a man that has a demon, and the demon says, we don't want your help. Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, that's the same. There's only one Holy One in this, in the magnitude that this is given to us, uh, and that is the Christ. And so, verse 19 um, has to do everything with Christ. Verse 20, remember, he expounded to them Moses and the prophets. And he would have picked out a verse like that and said, that's me. Verse 20, for the terrible one is brought to nothing, the scornful one is consumed, and all who watch for an iniquity are cut off. Well, chapter 13, God says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for its iniquity. I will halt the ignorance of the proud and lay low the haughtiness or the arrogance of the terrible. Um, verse 21, who make a man, an offender by a word, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate and turn aside the just by empty words. Now he's dealing with the, the corrupt court system. The gate is where legal matters were settled. And I, he, he says, you know those power-crazed pros, uh, prosecutors that care nothing for justice or truth that will take a president and try to bring him in charges and, and just do all this corruption just to menace and the evil that they do. That's who he's talking about right here. Isaiah had to deal with these people too. And Isaiah was in plugged into the court of the king. He was very close with Hezekiah. He says, and lay a, he talks about the people who lay a snare for those who reprove in the gate. And that is, of course, the wicked people who twist justice in the court system, the corrupt lawyers, the corrupt judges. Some lawyers are not corrupt. Some judges are not corrupt. Others are. Uh, journalists and those uh, corrupt journalists, journalists, and those activists who dig for dirt. You know, Billy Graham, when he would go on the road and would get a hotel room, he always would. It would always be him and somebody else in that room. 
as a witness. And if someone knocked on the door, the other person would answer the door because they were trying to trap Billy and, uh, you know, besmirk the ministry. And they would have, you know, a, a, a girl there in a trench coat and that's all. And when Bill, if Billy opened the door, she would quickly jump in the way and snap a picture making it look like he was with her. And so they knew to protect against these types of people. Uh, and this is, and, and they do many other things. Now they can just hack your computer, make it look like they do, just plant false evidence. Evil people. That's who Isaiah is talking about. And turn aside the just by empty words. They're lying about them. Perjurers do harm. Under oath, they lie and it hurts you. Because the court's saying, well, he took an oath. If I took an oath, these are corrupt people. And then they go out into society and further do damage because of their penchant for corruption. Anyway, uh, verse 22. So we shouldn't be surprised when we see these things. But it always is surprising. Verse uh, 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall not... Now be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale. Again, overtones and views of the end times run throughout the prophets. They always had the hand on hope. Verse 23, but when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hollow my name and hollow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. Boy, there's a triune blessing with, of, with God hollowing the name Yahweh, hollowing the Holy One, and, and the, the, hollowing the fear of the God of Israel. Um, always a word of righteousness. Hope springs eternal. Men like Ezra, women like Ruth, uh, these are who will be rejoicing. Uh, that would be men and women like, like us, in spite of our failures. Elijah was a like prophet. I was a prophet with like passions. Uh, anyway, coming back to this, I already mentioned about our, when we pray, hallowed be thy name. I won't repeat. Verse 24. These also who err in spirit will come to understanding, and those who complained will learn doctrine. So God, the things we struggle with, ignorance and criticism. <laughs> I mean, I... I don't struggle with those things. I struggle with people who struggle with those things. <laughs> and I, I criticize them a lot. All right, well, I know, we're almost done. Uh, anyway, they're going to learn their Bibles. That's what God is saying. The time will come when they will love to learn about me. When we will no longer be amazed at the levels of biblical uh, apathy and apostasy and ignorance. I close with two more verse, two verses. Revelation 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Remember the seal of the word we talked about? Remember we talked about Ariel, the lion of God. We talked about Judah and Jerusalem. We talked about the sacrifice in this section, chapter 5. He is the lamb who was slain, and he is the one that takes the scroll. He has the rights to, to the world. No more curse because of him, Revelation 22.3. And there shall be no more curse, 
but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. So we pick up on those two verses, the Judah, the lion, and the lamb, the altar. It was the lamb, of course, the sacrificial lamb. Uh, all of it fits together. The place of sacrifice uh, that Israel was supposed to lionize, the lion's altar, is fulfilled in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. A precept is upon precept. And line is upon line. And it is meaningful. And it does get things done in the face of discouragement. Uh, yes, uh, we, we see the struggles, but we also see the victories. May we make, may they multiply, Lord. May they not, we're not looking for you to add victories. We're looking for you to multiply them because we know these are the things you do. May you get us all home safely this evening. In Jesus' name we ask you, amen.